This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today, this we, we are discussing something that was highly demanded by listeners. We are discussing a rock star who goes by a notorious RBG, or as I call her, the Grand Dame of Descent, none other than Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has probably been blowing up your social media feeds of late because ever since... Her dissent that she wrote in the Supreme Court case, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, it's as though we cannot stop talking about how incredible she is because this was a 35 page dissent she wrote in that uh, to that five to four Supreme Court ruling, part of which she read from the bench which justices don't typically do. It's basically like a sassy finger snapping. Yeah, if you severely disagree with what the court has ruled, you will read your dissent from the bench. And I also like that she, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wears a an especially fierce jabot, which is the name for the judicial collar, like the lace collar that you might see. She has one that is, it's almost Game of Thronesy mm-hmm. that she'll wear when she reads a dissent. And so just for a quick rundown, the Supreme Court ruled five to four Basically, that the government cannot require certain employers to provide insurance coverage for methods of birth control and emergency contraception that conflict with their religious beliefs. It's popularly called the Hobby Lobby decision. And uh, Justice Ginsburg, man, I mean, she wrote a strongly worded 35 page dissent that everybody's talking about. Um, I mean, this is hardly her first foray into women's rights and gender issues. Way more on that later. But in her dissent, she was joined by Justice Sotomayor, who fully supported it, and Justices Breyer and Kagan, who supported all but one section. And that group right there of Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan and Breyer are considered the liberal group on the Supreme Court. They right. tend to vote together. Um, and, and and the three women in particular, and kind of understandably, also tend to vote together. And and just to give you an idea of this dissent, which I feel like there, it, it's not very often that we hear quotes from Supreme Court dissents being circulated almost viral style on social media. But... The court, I fear, has ventured into a minefield is a Twitter friendly quote, for instance, from that dissent that has made its way all around the Internet. Yeah, it was even incorporated into a song by that one guy who does a song a day project or whatever. He incorporated that into some of his lyrics. Some other things that she wrote um are that, and I think this is so important. If you're going to have a discussion about birth control and reproductive freedom and all that stuff, I mean, money plays a huge part in this, right? And one thing that uh, Ginsburg wrote was it bears note in this regard that the cost of an IUD is nearly equivalent to a month's full time pay for workers earning the minimum wage. So, yes, women are still free who work for Hobby Lobby to go get an IUD. They will just have to drop serious cash for it. Yeah, IEDs do not come cheap at all, but they are the most effective form of birth control on the market and they last for up to five years. Mm-hmm. So it makes it financially infeasible for a lot of these women to go and get what is considered to be the best of the best in terms of uh, birth control. And a lot of what she does in this descent is 
distinguish the legal protections afforded to and necessarily afforded to via freedom of religion in the United States, the legal protections afforded to specific religious organizations and nonprofit groups from the interests of for-profit corporations. And a lot of what she does is sort of ask this bigger question of, well, if we offer a religious exemption in this situation, in something that not only has a bearing perhaps on women's sexual activity, which gets way too much focus in the whole birth control debate, in quotes, but also on women's health care in general, because birth control serves more functions healthcare wise than simply preventing pregnancy. So if you make this exemption, then where will that stop? So there's a quote, for instance, from the dissent saying, would the exemption extend to employers with religiously grounded objections to blood transfusions, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, antidepressants with Scientologists, medications derived from pigs, including anesthesia, intravenous fluids, and pills coated with gelatin with certain Muslims, Jews, and Hindus, and vaccinations? Not much help there for the lower courts bound by today's decision. Hence, as she goes on to finally conclude the issue of the court venturing into a potential minefield. Yeah. And, um, you know, Google, definitely Google the full dissent. We won't just read it to you. This podcast will not just be us reading the dissent to you, although, you know, it makes for good reading. Um, but Ginsburg was interviewed by Katie Couric in a highly circulated uh, video And she came out and said that she does believe that her male colleagues, save Breyer, uh, on the bench, do have a blind spot when it comes to women. And she went on to tell Katie Couric that, no, she did not believe that the male justices in this case understood the ramifications of their decision. And one thing that jumped out to me in that conversation with Couric was how Ginsburg underscored the vital importance of access to birth control for all women, not just women of higher socioeconomic means who are not as affected directly by this Hobby Lobby decision to be able to control their own, as she put it, destinies. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have access to birth control, that I mean, that takes that removes so much choice. Yeah, I got into a rather fruitless Facebook conversation about this with a a male Facebook friend who basically is like, well, you know, they're not going to cover my root canal. So why should they cover your birth control? And I said, well, but your root canal does not affect your ability to make decisions for yourself in terms of your life and your family and your money because it won't sideline you and take you out of the workforce the way that maybe an unintended or unhealthy pregnancy would. Yeah. And when it comes to this issue of freedom of religion, which is something that a lot of people bring up as well, because obviously that is a right that needs to be protected. That is a a fundamental foundation of the U.S. Constitution. But as Ginsburg put it so well, and as she, she sort of echoed this in the interview, what she wrote in the dissent about how, One has the freedom to move one's arm until it hits the other fellow's nose. And it's the same way with speech, and it's the same way with religion. You can exercise your right freely until it's affecting other people who don't share your views. And she goes on to talk about how she, this is nothing against her, you know, thinking that hobby, the owners of Hobby Lobby shouldn't believe what they believe. She said they're free to believe what they want to. However, you have no constitutional right to then foist that belief on the women who work for you. So the, the, a lot a lot of young women, I think, our age, essentially did the Internet version of giving her a, a prolonged standing ovation because uh, it, hearing that from someone with such power, I think, was very empowering for us to hear about. I think that's yeah. a big reason why this episode has been so highly requested. And I'll tell you, Caroline, that simply... Spending a weekend reading all about her for this podcast was so inspiring mm-hmm. because I was not aware. Obviously, I was aware of you know work that she's done on the Supreme Court, but I was not aware of the extent of her legacy and what she considers her legacy to be someone who has fought for her entire career for the rights of women. 
Yeah, and so when you have things like the notorious RBG t-shirts, for instance, I mean, people who created that and other stuff, like stickers that they posted all around D.C. and everything, these people worshipped her before this Hobby Lobby case even came around because of her amazing legacy. So her dissents in two cases, Fisher versus University of Texas, which weakened affirmative action laws, and Shelby County versus Holder, which weakened the Voting Rights Act, led to NYU law student Shanna Nisnik creating that notorious RBG Tumblr that I'm sure a lot of you have already been to, and Amina Tussau and Frank Chi creating the Can't Spell Truth Without Ruth stickers that ended up getting posted all over D.C. And what's so awesome is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is aware of this stuff. She was somebody walked up to her in a restaurant and showed her the stickers and she has she had to ask her staff, like, what is this notorious business? And they explained that. I mean, you know, you're talking about notorious B.I.G., who's this large African-American man with a large presence. And it's being applied to teeny tiny Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> well, he's a rapper. I mean, that's the thing. He's yeah. like this like gangster rapper. And you have this like tiny little Jewish woman who weighs like as much as a handful of pebbles. <laughs> and but she's so powerful. And right. there is this incredibly charming part of that Katie Couric interview where Couric asks her about the notorious RBG stuff. And she's clearly tickled and at one point says, there is nothing on the websites that is not both pleasing and humorous. <laughs> and in this massive <laughs> grin. So she, she knows she's a rock star. Yeah. And uh, there was a, an article in the New Republic that I posted a while back now on the Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page about... This notorious RBG, like internet fame, focused on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then you also have, sort of in the same vein, the uh, text with Hillary Clinton, where she's wearing the sunglasses mm-hmm. and it's this very funny meme. And also the internet fame that broke out around uh, Texas politician Wendy Davis. And it's important because it, it's essentially millennial women and men providing this, I don't know, like new form of coolness to these radically powerful women who for a long time uh, were were maybe not treated as such awesome rock stars by young people. Right. Yeah. I mean, generally, society's view of powerful women is not necessarily an overwhelmingly positive one. But then you do have these young whippersnappers. <laughs> I'm 30. I can say that. I mean, this this younger generation of like more liberal feminist individuals coming up who are like, right on, you're a strong, powerful woman and you're sticking up for other people's rights. And we're going to celebrate you the only way we know how, which is on the Internet, which means a bajillion other people can celebrate with us. Yeah. And it's not only just a celebration, but also an acknowledgement of these women as role models. Yeah. And it, I think it's it's exciting. Um and one other word about the dissents, because it has been Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissents, particularly in 2013, the 2013 uh, Supreme Court season that uh, propelled her Internet fame. Uh, just for a note, she read from the bench her dissents five times last year, which is pretty much unprecedented yeah. for a justice. She is fired up mm-hmm. and she's going to put on her fierce Game of Thrones-esque jabot and read her dissent. You can't stop Ruth. You can't stop Ruth. You cannot stop Ruth. So who, though, is Ruth? Who is the real notorious RBG, Caroline? Yeah, because you can tell in our voices that we are glowing talking about her because she is so amazing. Well, so what made her that way? And we will certainly look into that in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. 
They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart and everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a a lovely conversation. Um, It was really fun. Yeah, and I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and clean up easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg was born, Ruth Joan Bader in Brooklyn, during the Great Depression. And she told makers that when she was growing up, her mother gave her two important pieces of advice. One, be a lady, i.e. don't be distracted by anger or resentment. They only sap energy and waste time, which I think she clearly has taken to heart. And two, be independent. She said uh, she hoped I would meet Prince Charming, but she stressed the importance of being able to make it on my own. Yeah. Well, so I think she definitely took these pieces of advice to heart. She ended up going to Cornell, where she met future husband Marty Ginsburg. Uh, she was 17. He was 18. They married in 1954, right after she graduated, and he himself would become a very accomplished lawyer. And listening to listening to her talk about Marty is like I people just hope to find that kind of life partner. She said that what she really appreciated about him was that he really cared about what I thought. And she said, and this during a time when most men hoped that women didn't have a brain. Now, her family wanted her to marry Marty. That's totally fine. But just be a high school teacher. And they were kind of disappointed when she decided to pursue law. But at the same time, they were relieved that she was at least married. Yeah. And they said, hey, at least she has a husband who'll support her. And she goes off on this crazy adventure. Well, it would be a crazy adventure because when she got into Harvard Law, where uh, Marty also ended up going with her, she was one of nine women in a class of more than 500. Yeah, and she admitted to makers also that she definitely felt the pressure, all eyes on you. And she had this feeling that if you failed, if you answered a question wrong, if you didn't do something up to standard, you were failing your entire sex. She definitely had that pressure riding on top of her. But during this time, she wasn't just another law student. She was also a mom of 14-month-old Jane. So on top of her coursework and caring for the kiddo, Ruth also ended up taking Marty's classes and writing his papers for him because he was being treated for testicular cancer. And so she says it was during this time in her life that she realized how little sleep she could get by on and how much she could stretch her day out because she had to go to class, you know, come home, take care of the baby, do Marty's work, and then do her own work. When she slept, ate, or used the bathroom, I have no idea. Yeah, just reading about that made me tired. (laughs) Yeah. And then in 1959, she graduated law school from Columbia, not Harvard, because even though she was ranked first in her class at Harvard Law, the dean at the time just refused to grant her a degree, seeing how she was a woman. And even though she had done her coursework there, but thankfully, Columbia accepted her and graduated her. And when it came time for jobs, she received no offers. Same thing happened to Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first 
female justice on the Supreme Court. And at one point, she even had to explain to it might have been that dean at Harvard or a professor at Harvard how she was going to justify taking a job that should be going to a man at a law firm. So that was the climate when she got out of law school. Yeah, and because she couldn't find a job, she ended up being a law professor um, amid a bunch of other things that she was doing at the time. And we will definitely talk about this in just a second when we look at her legal career. Um, she taught at Rutgers and received tenure there in 1969. But more recently in her personal life, she has experienced a lot of health problems that have led a lot of people to continue to question this poor woman about when she's going to retire. Just leave her alone already. But anyway, in 1999, she was treated for colon cancer. And in 2009, she underwent surgery for pancreatic cancer, but the woman never missed a single oral argument during those periods. She always made sure to get her treatments on a Friday so she had the weekend to recover so she could be back on the bench on Monday. And who advised her to do that? Sandra Day O'Connor. That's right, because she did the same thing. Yep. And when her husband, Marty, died in 2010, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the bench the next day to hear arguments because, quote, that's what he would have wanted. So there's really no stopping Ruth. It's true. And when you look at her career, even before she is appointed to the Supreme Court, it is nothing short of incredible and If you are a woman listening to this podcast, pay attention because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has done a lot for you. Yeah, and I thought that um, New Yorker writer Jeffrey Tubin's profile of her was so fascinating, so enlightening. It really hit home how just how brilliant and accomplished she is. She is the current court's most accomplished litigator. And Tubin points out that part of her success is that Ginsburg had, quote, exquisite timing. She brought women's rights cases at precisely the moment the Supreme Court was willing to decide them in her favor. And as we'll talk about, she also had a very strict MO that she pursued as far as bringing these cases because she didn't believe in trying to set up all the dominoes at once and knock them all down at once. She believed in going after all of these stereotypes about women that were written into law, that were actual policy, and just knocking them down one by one. And one of the ways that she was able to do that, too, was by presenting cases that demonstrated not necessarily how gender discrimination negatively impacts women, but how it negatively impacts men. Because if you were bringing these cases before a Supreme Court at the time filled with all male justices then you need to get inside their heads some so that they can relate more closely to that. And that was another strategy that she used that made her so successful in front of the court. And in the 1960s, this was the Supreme Court, uh, the, the Warren Court. And she talked about how during the era of the Warren Court, Discrimination against women was seen as more of a protective thing. So there was this case where um, there was a discrimination case involving allowing women to be on juries because at the time men had to go for jury duty. But it was only I think it was just optional for mm-hmm. women. And there was a case involving, I think, a, a wife being murdered by a husband. There was a history of domestic violence and the guy ended up getting off partially because there was an all-male jury. And so she was talking about how, you know, the, the the first thing they had to do was dismantle these sort of paternalistic and protective ideas that were, I mean, essentially it's discrimination just under the guise of something that's actually doing women a favor. Well, you don't you don't have to be on a jury and hear all those gory details <laughs> if you don't want to be. Right. And it's interesting to hear her take on the court, the Warren court of the 60s and how she then echoes that when she talks about her male colleagues in the Hobby Lobby case having a blind spot because she says that I don't think and this is the Warren court. I don't think they regarded discrimination against women as discrimination at all. These are people who thought they were good fathers. They were good husbands. And they didn't understand barriers that women faced as discriminatory. And so just talking about how important, like Kristen said, it was to dismantle all of those preconceived notions. 
So in the 1960s, she is working as the associate director of the Columbia Law School Project on International Procedure, which sends her to Sweden. So she's like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm just going to teach myself Swedish. Yeah, no, she did. No big deal. So she then travels to Sweden, learns all about their legal system while she's working uh, with a Swedish university's faculty and writing a book about their legal system. And this was this was a highly influential period for her because this is what really got her thinking about the intersection and importance of women in the law. So in Sweden, she was at the University of Lund and she noted to her interviewer that 20 percent of the school's students were women versus four percent of law students in the U.S. During this time, also, she observed a court proceeding where the judge was an eight months pregnant lady. I mean, I guess as opposed to an eight months pregnant man. And it wasn't weird. It wasn't a thing. It was just life. It was just a judge. Who cares? It was just Sweden. It was just Sweden. And also at this time, an Arizona woman was in the news a lot for traveling to Sweden for an abortion after she had taken thalidomide in the U.S., which is known to cause a lot of terrible birth defects. And then Bader Ginsburg read Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, and she says that was an eye opener. Maybe the law can catch up to changes in society. Yeah, it's this complete, almost like the perfect storm yeah. of all of these things going on around her and all the experiences that she had faced, even when it came to her working at Columbia Law School. She completely acknowledges that that was a byproduct of affirmative action starting to take place of people saying, okay, you top tier schools. Do you have a woman? Do you have a woman? Do you have your woman? And she was like, I'll be a woman. I'll be someone's woman. Take me. Um, and so in the seventies, she's still a professor. She's also a litigator and she is arguing several of the most important women's rights cases in the Supreme court's history. And I believe she went before the court five times, one, four, of her cases, which mm. in case you aren't great with statistics, that's a really good record. <laughs> and she worked to persuade the justices at the time that the Constitution was not dead. This is really significant. So this idea of a living Constitution, in other words, that what the framers are our, our, like constitutional framers wrote is something that can evolve alongside society. Yeah, and one of her big cases was in 1971. It was Reed versus Reed. She succeeded in persuading the justices that a clause in the 14th Amendment applied not just to race, but also to sex. And it's the clause that says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And building off of that success, that early success, like I said earlier, she made an effort to slowly and steadily go after these government policies that discriminated Based on sex and a few significant milestones in uh, the 70s, she co-founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter, the first law journal in the U.S. devoted to gender equality issues. That was in 1970. In 1972, she became the first tenured woman at Columbia Law School. Like I said, she was like, I'll be your woman. Here, let, 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 let it be me. And she also co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU to take on issues of gender discrimination. And then in 1974, she co-authored the very first textbook on sex discrimination law. This woman literally wrote the book on sex discrimination, gender discrimination, yeah. women's rights in a legal context in the United States. Yeah, and so as far as uprooting gender discrimination, you know, Kristen mentioned earlier that Bader Ginsburg thought it was very important to not just show how women were being hurt by gender discrimination, but to show that men, especially fathers, were also being hurt, too. In 1975, she argued a sex discrimination case on a man's behalf, Stephen Wiesenfeld, who was a widower, who was not allowed to collect Social Security benefits after his wife had died. Now, these are benefits that if Stephen had died, his wife would have been able to go to the office, collect these benefits, you know, have money to support her and the child. Why? It doesn't make any sense. Why would the man not be allowed to collect benefits when his wife had died? Because the wife wasn't the breadwinner, Caroline. Right. And so Bader Ginsburg is talking about this stereotype that had been written into law. The one she wanted to undo in this case was the idea of man as breadwinner, 
woman as caretaker. The the idea that was etched in stone at the time that it couldn't be the other way around. And even if a man was a breadwinner, why would he ever want to collect benefits in the wake of his uh, spouse's death? And she won, of course, because she is the notorious RBG. Has always been. Has always She pretty much has always been. And so Jimmy Carter, old old President Jimmy Carter, peanut farmer, uh, in 1980, he recognized that there was a notorious RBG in his midst. And so he appointed her to the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, But she did not use her position, it's often noted, to be some kind of liberal firebrand. There there was a Columbia Law School professor, Jamal Green, who said she fundamentally does not believe that large scale social change should come from the courts, which is notable because we often hear today, especially with these kinds of cases, such as the Hobby Lobby decision coming out about activist judges Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and while Ruth Bader Ginsburg would probably be seen at, by conservatives as one of those activist judges, that is fundamentally not the way she sees the function of the court. Yeah, it's not her style. She did actually take issue with Roe versus Wade. I was, I, I knew nothing about this. I was, I was pretty surprised to read it, but it makes sense when you look at her style. She thought that Roe versus Wade sort of bulldozed the conversation. She wanted to see the abortion debate the abortion legislation, the abortion court decisions go the way that her sex discrimination cases did. Take it down one at a time. Basically open a dialogue with legislators. Don't tell them, here's what your deal is, guys. You open that dialogue to say, here's a ruling. Go forth and make it right. Well, and that is probably why you see the court handling gay marriage in the United States in the way that it is. It's taking it more on a, I mean, it was able to take care of the federal aspect of gay marriage in terms of uh, taking out that clause in DOMA. But when it comes to the state by state gay marriage laws, they want to leave it for now, at least up to the states. And she talks about how with Roe versus Wade, what it did was it, it focused on Texas, which had the most intense surprise uh, anti-abortion laws in the country at the time. And she said that by sort of wrapping the whole issue of legalized abortion up into one decision that actually gave anti-abortion activists a single target to unify around yeah. and actually empower them in a way to, you know, to, to make their campaign even more, um, I don't know, even more powerful, what you could say, because what are we seeing right now? We're seeing Roe v. Wade being eroded. Guess what? State by state. Yep. And then in 1993, RBG is appointed to the Supreme Court by President Bill Clinton. She becomes the second woman and the first Jewish woman to sit on the bench. Yeah, she joined Sandra Day O'Connor, who had been the lone woman on the court since Reagan appointed her in 1981. And then when Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down, she retired from the court uh, in order to care for her husband in 2006. She was replaced by Samuel Alito and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a little bummed out by it, let's be honest, because Alito way more conservative than Sandra Day O'Connor. Well, so then in the mid to late 2000s, um, we see Ginsburg like really becoming this this for I mean, not that she wasn't a force already, but we see her passion clearly in in a few specific cases. Well, she starts dissenting. She becomes what do you call her? The queen of dissent, the, the grand dame of dissent. Yes. Um, if anyone wants to put that on a T-shirt, I'll take it. Um, so there are two cases in 2007 that are super big and important. Uh, she wrote a beautiful dissent in Gonzalez versus Carhart, which is the case where the court upheld the federal ban on par- partial birth abortions with no provisions for a mother's life being endangered. So writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy wrote, while we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, it seems Unexceptionable to conclude some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. And then I picture Ginsburg like flaming up like a phoenix from the fire and writing a dissent. And she says, 
uh, that Kennedy invoked an anti-abortion shibboleth for which it conceitedly has no reliable evidence. Women who have abortions come to regret their choices and consequently suffer from, quote, severe depression and loss of self-esteem. This way of thinking reflects ancient notions about women's place in the family and under the Constitution. Ideas that have long since been discredited. Well, and who helped discredit those ideas? She did. She did. So her, the fact that she writes these powerful dissents makes so much sense once you, once you see her legal legacy leading up to that. And in that dissent too, she pointed out that the protection of reproductive rights is not about some, quote, vague or generalized notion of privacy, but rather about, quote, a woman's autonomy to decide for herself her life's course and thus enjoy equal citizenship stature. And that right there goes right back to what she was talking about to Katie Couric about the importance of birth control access in terms of a woman controlling her own Destiny. That's absolutely right. And so also in 2007, you get the Lily Ledbetter case being thrown out. And don't worry, we'll explain. Ginsburg writing another slam dunk dissent. So basically, long story short, Lily Ledbetter had been working for a good year. She had climbed up the ladder to become a manager, found out after she retired that she the whole time had been making a lot less than her male counterparts, including men not only on her own level, but even men below her were making more. She sues and a jury awards her nearly four million dollars. Awesome. Okay, but Goodyear appealed and the case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, who then throws it out. Justice Alito writing the opinion for the court, basically said that Ledbetter had waited too long and that claims for pay discrimination had to be brought within 180 days of the violation, which would have been a little crazy when you think about it because that means she would have had to appeal each and every paycheck. So, in her dissent, Ginsburg said, how could she have appealed this stuff when she didn't even know? She said, the court's insistence on immediate contest overlooks common characteristics of pay discrimination. And this goes... Back to a or forward, I guess, to a conversation that I feel like has been going on a lot lately, which is, you know, the conversation of do you be polite and not talk with your coworkers about how much you make? Because that being polite means that a lot of women don't realize that they're making a lot less than their male counterparts. And so Ginsburg, and this is another dissent that she read from the bench, meaning that she was really P.O.'d. She basically invited Congress to overturn her colleague's decision, which is super powerful because so she she's not known for like fiery or flowery language in her dissents that she writes. So when she read her dissent from the bench, she also made it more colloquial so that it could get picked up by legislators and by people on the Internet and by news outlets so they could easily turn it into sound bites and spread it. And it spread like wildfire, girl. She invited Congress to overturn the decision, putting it front and center in the media. And one of the first things that Barack Obama did when he became president was to sign a bill into law overruling the Ledbetter case. And so then we get the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. Bam! Drop the mic. Notorious! (laughs) So right! Now, these dissents that she has been writing, and notably reading from the bench, are crucial because it's not just an exercise in a Supreme Court justice grabbing the mic and saying, well, this is why I disagree with you. But actually, that is a process of lawmaking because there have been cases, and she thinks there will be more cases, where decisions are overturned and enacted in favor of the dissenting opinion. So when she's talking to Katie Couric about the Hobby Lobby decision and also Citizens United, which is a very closely aligned decision, sort of teed up for Hobby Lobby, which is the Supreme Court decision that essentially uh, rendered you know corporations being treated as people. She thinks that eventually at least Hobby Lobby will be overturned that in the future the the dissent that she writes <laughs> will get its due it will get yeah. its its day in court and i mean clearly we've established that she is all about women's rights all about reproductive choice all about feminism etc and she thinks though that that all this is so important 
specifically not just because it affects women, but it's also because it affects poor women in particular. She has said when it comes to Roe versus Wade and now birth control access, R.E. Hobby Lobby, quote, we have a policy that affects only poor women and it can never be otherwise. And I don't know why this hasn't been said more often. The basic thing is that the government has no business making that choice for a woman. And she goes on to say, I think the side that wants to take the choice away from women and give it to the state, they're fighting a losing battle. Time is on the side of change. Well, the question, though, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 81 years old. The question is, well, who is going to be the agent of that change? It is not going to be Chief Justice John Roberts Mm -hmm. and Alito and Mm -hmm. Scalia, who I really enjoyed the fact that Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are actually pretty close. Yeah, trivia. uh, Ruth and Marty would spend every New Year's Eve with. Uh, Scalia and his wife, and they often went to the opera together. Yeah, so because I mean, she thinks like you know, this is business. Obviously, yeah. it's okay if you disagree. Um, and and they both have tremendous respect for each other. But who is it going to be? I mean, the the women on the court is very important because of that issue that she talked about in the beginning of uh, that that we mentioned in the beginning about perspective and. You know, male justices possibly sometimes having that blind spot. Yeah. And I mean, she she talks like part of the reason it's so critical for women to be at the table, you know, in the Supreme Court (laughs) is the same reason that it's important for women to be at any table is that if you lose those other perspectives, you lose a lot. You lose a lot more than just a woman talking. You lose an entire lifetime of experience, especially from someone as amazing and experienced as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and on the plus side, when it comes to the court, Elena Kagan is not only the newest justice, but she's also the youngest justice. She'll be there for a while, along with Sonia Sotomayor. But now the big question when it comes to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, now that we love her so much, everyone's asking her to leave. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And I I, 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 I think you should stop asking people when they're going to retire um, and leave her alone. But I mean, she's handling it so graciously. She's like, look, guys, I'm fine. I'm going to stick around until I just can't do it anymore. And then I'll stop. But I mean, there, there is a strategy behind the pressure being put on her to leave now while there is a Democrat in office because, you know, then it will be Obama selecting her successor. So people are saying, you know what, Ruth, go ahead and you make an exit. That way we will be guaranteed to have another liberal justice in your place because if the next president is a Republican, a lot more conservative, therefore mm-hmm. probably tap a conservative replacement should she leave during that term. And then the court would be overwhelmingly conservative, even with Kennedy's swing vote. Yes. And I mean, I can I can see the logic in a lot of these liberal commentators point. I get it. But when you think about when you go back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the lawyer, Her style, her style is very slow but steady wins the race. It's not about installing activist judges and thinking only about the short term and thinking only about, oh, no, we need Obama to to appoint a, a liberal justice so that we can continue to have this balance on the court or whatever. It's much more the long view. And uh, Linda Greenhouse, who is a Yale Law School fellow and former New York Times Supreme Court correspondent, talks about this long view of history that she imagines Ruth Bader Ginsburg holds. Uh, she says, quote, she has to believe that justice will win out in the end or that if it doesn't, her departure at one point or another couldn't be the major factor. And Greenhouse goes on to say, I think this and I bet Ginsburg does, too, that really it should be up to legislators to legislate. You shouldn't have a court whose job it is to legislate every single aspect of our lives. Bader Ginsburg is very in favor of having that two-way street of being like, we're going to rule on something, and now society, take it. Take it from there. I also wonder, too, if some of this, you know, people watching their watches, keeping an eye on their watches to see, like, okay, Ruth, when are you going to leave? When are you going to leave, gal? It's partially because she 
is rather small mm-hmm. and she speaks rather slowly and she her staffers even have a trick where if she says something or if they ask her a question you wait you count to like two, two or three mississippi because she usually just takes a minute naturally to answer you mm-hmm. so some see that as a sign of her frailty but in fact she still writes incredibly fast she's mm-hmm. one of the fastest writers and responders still on the court. Well, so. she had to be if she was up at 2 a.m. writing her husband's papers in law school. Right. Well, but I thought she told the cutest story because she is like this woman is hyper aware of what's going on around her. It's not like she's in some bubble. And she was talking. She was commenting on the view like she she took too long to stand up from the bench one time. And people were like, oh, no, she's so old and frail. And she was like, actually, if you want to talk about, you know, men not feeling comfortable kicking off their shoes around women. I kick off my shoes under the bench. And she's like, one kind of got away from me. And so I couldn't stand up fast enough because I couldn't find it with my foot. I mean, God, I just love her. I just I think this view that Greenhouse, Yale Law Professor Greenhouse pointed out is is so perfect as far as like the Supreme Court is bigger. Justice in, in the United States is bigger than one person on the court. And I I do subscribe to Ginsburg's thought that, hey, things things will work out. Time is on our side. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I am. Um, I I'm choosing to be optimistic. Yeah. Well, if anything, it makes me really happy that we have a rock star in an 80 year old Supreme Court justice woman who worked her entire life tirelessly legally advocating for the rights of women. That's amazing. That to me says that, you know, time maybe is on our side. If if that's our celebrity right now, if that's the woman we're putting on T-shirts, then the women, you know, growing up now will have a brighter future. Agreed. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously, it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code Mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there. And we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas. They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash MomStuff. That's better com slash MomStuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. So I hope that this satisfied all of the requests that we've gotten recently uh, for this episode. And we now want to hear your thoughts on the Notorious RBG Send them our way. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. Have any of you met her out of curiosity? 
just let us know. Uh, you can email us. You can also tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast and also message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have an email here from Stacy regarding best friend. Uh, she says, I thought I'd email as I, like possibly everyone, feel my relationship with my BFF is a little unique. What actually makes our friendship so special and so important to the both of us is that we are in the same stage in our lives and we have the same priorities in our life. We both decided to leave little old New Zealand to seek greener pastures, her to L.A., myself to Taiwan, within two weeks of each other. We were going through the exact same transitional issues at the same time and were absolutely vital to each other in dealing with homesickness, culture shock, indecision, and the crippling self-doubt that comes with the job hunt. We don't have our families here with us, and even if we did, they wouldn't understand what we were going through in the way that we need them to. Instead, we have each other. And thank God for modern technology. I talk to the BFF every day about every major and trivial thing in my life. There may be 6,700 miles between us, but we've made it seem like nothing. In fact, uh, look at this. The two of us are writing a book together. It's called My Best Friend is Better Than Yours and Other Truths. She says, keep doing what you're doing. Living in an Asian country and the weekly dose of English discussion is always a welcome relief. So thank you, Stacy. And I've got one here from William. He writes, good evening, ladies. I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm hoping for some help. I will be running the Detroit Marathon this year with the Hope Water Project. Our goal is to drill wells for the Potok tribe in Kenya, and they are a forgotten people. First and foremost, they need a reliable source of clean water. How is this a woman's issue? Well, the women and children of the Potok walk for miles daily in search of any water source. Typically, they have to share it with animals, and you can only imagine the filth and disease that comes with it. By drilling wells, we are able to provide the most valuable of resources, time. Time to be industrious, time to educate the youth, and time to build a community to remove these people from the grips of poverty. $21 provides the funds for clean water for one person, and I would love to have participation from every state of the union. If the United States is a country in which we are able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, I want to provide these bootstraps on the other side of the world. I don't know people in all 50 states, and by the nature of your business, you do. I would be eternally grateful if you could promote this for me. And I'm not above bribery. I think there might be a case of Bell's Too Hard at Ale with your names yes. on us. If you can help me out. <laughs> Thanks. So, everybody, go check out the Hope Water Project and support William, who is running in the Detroit Marathon this year to help fund that, which sounds like a fantastic initiative. So... Thanks, William, and thanks to everybody who's written to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And if you want to read along with all of the fantastic sources that we found about the Notorious RBG, well, you can find that podcast as well as all of our other podcasts and sources as well as all of our blogs and videos over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.